The concentration of wealth that is reflected in Davos and the way in which that wealth and power is defended is at the heart of the collapse of democratic norms. Davos Med will tell us that he has all of our best interests at heart, that there are win-win solutions to every problem. This is a, an elaborate prophylactic against fair distribution of wealth. Davos man, he is the man. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So Nick, have you ever been to Davos? I have not. I used to feel bad about that, but now I'm happy. <laughs> But, but you know a lot of those guys. I do. So you failed around with some of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So you've got some firsthand uh, experience with uh, what uh, this episode's guest, Peter Goodman, calls Davos Man. <laughs> I, I do. I do. And I, I love, I think I think it's a, a really interesting contribution in, in a way to go beyond, you know, characterizing the rich simply is the rich, but I do think he's really onto something with the way in which he describes Davos man as this sort of, you know, a subset of the wealthiest people who are in many ways above and beyond national boundaries, you know, sort of operate uh, globally, defending institutions and in power that exists effectively outside of the sort of normal governance. Right. It, the, the interesting thing is it reminds me of this uh, expression uh, from I don't know, the 70s, the 80s, where people would refer to the man. They, they'd blame it on the man. And we all knew there was no actual man, but the world operated that way. And what you yeah. have with Davos man, he is the man. It's yeah. like this. It's not a conspiracy, but in effect, operates as a conspiracy because these are the people that rule the world. Yeah. So the basic thesis of this book, Davos Man, I think is, is largely correct, which is that the concentration of wealth that is reflected in Davos and the people who attend it and the way in which that wealth and power is defended is at the heart of the collapse of democratic norms and uh, the increase in polarization that we find around the Western world. But, but what I'm really interested in talking to him about and trying to tease out is like really who's at fault? Is it Davos man himself or is it the economics profession that enabled all of this terrible behavior? Um, it'll be really interesting to get his perspective on that. And, you know, for those who don't know, Davos every year is convened in this tiny town in Switzerland, and it's basically a club for super rich, super powerful people from around the world who get together for a few days and hobnob and generally try to persuade themselves that what they're doing is great and righteous and figure out how to do more of it. There is, of course, a patina of uh, self-sacrifice 
and you know the greater good that folks try to paint this thing with. Uh, but it, you know, I think that what Peter's going to tell us is all of that is kind of a lie, and I I tend to agree that that if there's one principle that you can abstract from thousands of years of human history, it is that ordinary people cannot rely on the kindness of the rich and the powerful to create a just and uh, stable and secure world. I'm Peter Goodman. I'm the global economic correspondent for the New York Times, and I'm the author of Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. (laughs) We love it. Oh, I thought it would be up your alley. Yeah. <laughs> so, Peter, uh, tell me why uh, rich guys like Nick are such villains. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, it's not that every billionaire is a bad guy. The point of this book is not to demonize billionaires or even wealthy people. It's to note that we should not be outsourcing the solution of life's problems to billionaires and expecting that through stakeholder capitalism or philanthropy or whatever idea they cook up next in their public relations laboratory, uh, we can just simply dismantle government and forget about progressive taxation and regulation uh, and just assume that people like Larry Fink and Jamie Dimon and Mark Benioff will take care of climate change and social justice. You know, we have to understand that the world that we're living in is extremely unequal and not by accident because of the subject of my book, which is this systematic bottom-up transfer of wealth that's played out, not just in the United States, though notably so, but throughout most of the developed world. Uh, A couple of follow-up questions. So first, why did you call it Davos, man? And what, you know, what is that, where's that term come from? And what's the difference that you're trying to highlight between just rich people and Davos man. Sure. So Davos man is this term that was coined by the political scientist Samuel Huntington back in 2004. And he was using it to describe people who go to the World Economic Forum in Davos, this annual gathering of the most powerful people on earth. These are billionaires, heads of state, the odd celebrities. Uh, It's a place where billionaires go to meet uh, in secret rooms where they're not bothered by uh, SEC disclosure uh, or journalists or other annoyances to essentially, as one former forum executive put it to me, you know, write the rules for the rest of us. And I'd been going to the forum for a decade, and I came to see the people who go to Davos as a unique subset of the ultra wealthy in that, you know, Davos convenes under this mantra committed to improving the state of the world, which is this wonderful phrase to describe a gathering uh, that is full of the ultimate beneficiaries for the status quo. And I came to see, you know, that this was not an accident, that this was carefully engineered, that Davos and what I've come to call Davos man thinking, uh, this idea that you know, when we organize the rules of our economies to send more wealth to the people who've already got most of it, somehow through the magic of trickle down, we'll all benefit. And that's unique to Davos men. This is the differentiator between, you know, the everyday billionaire and Davos men. Davos men will tell us that he has all of our best interests at heart, that there are win-win solutions to every problem, and win-win is a great way of avoiding sacrifice. This is a, an elaborate prophylactic against 
fair distribution of wealth against progressive taxation, regulation, and antitrust enforcement. Do they believe it or is it just uh, PR? Well, I think part of the magic uh, is that they're really good at believing it. I think Davos man as a species is extremely good at crafting a narrative that leads to a useful place and then believe it. And, you know, all I can go by is how they behave. I mean, look at Mark Benioff, the, the billionaire CEO of Salesforce, the Silicon Valley tech company, who last year at virtual Davos, I mean, they couldn't meet in person because of the pandemic, actually said, CEOs are the real heroes of the pandemic. I mean, he wasn't talking about frontline medical workers, wasn't talking about the people delivering our packages or processing our food, working in slaughterhouses, uh, having to put you know their own health on the line so the rest of us can eat. He was talking about CEOs and he, he underscored this. This wasn't like some sort of gaffe. He said it multiple times and he said, you know, listen, government did not save you. We saved you and we did it not for profit, but just to save the world. Uh, I think when you spend time, as I have, with people like Benioff, you get the feeling that that they're really quite proud uh, of, of what it is they've done. I mean, Benioff goes on about how in the first wave of the pandemic, he pulled strings in China to find 50 million pieces of PPE. We're talking face masks and protective gowns. And he brought them to frontline medical workers in the States. And, you know, let's pause and say thanks for that. That probably did save lives. But let's also pause and ask, why are we dependent upon the largesse of a tech bro in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century to outfit our frontline medical workers in what's supposed to be the richest country in the world? And, and part of the reason is that people like Mark Benioff have you know, pointed at their philanthropy while they're quietly members of the Business Roundtable, this lobbying organization, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. These are the organizations that have delivered the massive tax cuts through which Salesforce itself has paid the modest sum of zero in federal taxes twice in the last several years. That's part of why the system is so starved of resources and why billionaires like Benioff can sort of swoop in like white knights. Yeah, I think you're dead right. And that is sort of uh, an embarrassing claim to make. So do you think, I mean, you've been at this for a pretty long time, as have I, do you think that the do you think these viewpoints have evolved or changed over the last 10 or 20 years? Do you think it's different today than it was? The, well, the packaging certainly different. Yeah. You, so, you think so? Well, I, I mean, I don't think the substance of how companies are running uh, is terribly different. I mean, there's certainly a lot of rhetoric that's different, right? I mean, culture's changed. I mean, CEOs are aware of Black Lives Matter. They're aware that they better at least look like they're taking diversity and hiring seriously, or, or they do run the risk of, of getting criticism that can hurt their brand, that can make it hard to recruit. I mean, that, that part's real. Uh, but if we look at you know, how they've actually run their companies, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, I spent a lot of time in the book on this thing, stakeholder capitalism, this idea mm -hmm. first uh, cooked up by Klaus Schwab, who's the founder of the World Economic Forum. Benioff is a big uh, celebrator of stakeholder capitalism. So is Larry Fink, who I know you guys have talked about. This is you know, the founder of BlackRock, the world's largest asset management company. This is a company that literally manages $10 trillion in wealth. 
And they will tell you that, oh, Milton Friedmanism is behind us now. Companies are no longer just organized to, to send returns to shareholders. Uh, it's all about catering to stakeholders, this magic word for Davos Man. And stakeholders are labor, never labor unions. You know, It's always on Davos Man's terms, but labor, local communities, uh, social issues. But you know, with a lot of fanfare in the summer of 2019, the business roundtable, then headed by Jamie Dimon, who's one of my five primary characters in the book, uh, actually got 180 some odd CEOs to sign this new statement of a purpose of a corporation. And they got lots of credulous writers uh, to proclaim that this was this huge transformation in capitalism, stakeholder capitalism is with us. Well, the pandemic is really the first serious test of these principles and whether they're real. It's, it, I spent a lot of time on this in the book. You know, Jeff Bezos signs the statement of a purpose of a corporation, and he leaves his warehouse workers laboring in the first wave of the pandemic with no protective gear. He fires the head of a labor movement uh, who uh, demands uh, that the plant in Staten Island, New York, uh, be shut down until they they can uh, get a handle on how many COVID cases there are. Uh, and then, of course, Bezos blasts himself into space in the middle of the pandemic to the tune of $5 billion at a time when most of humanity doesn't even have vaccines. Uh, we supposedly can't afford to, to pay them. Uh, there are countless other examples. And, and you know, research has actually been done showing that companies that signed the stakeholder capitalism pledge actually performed worse on a whole series of of indicators on, you know, workplace standards, compensation, diversity, they, they performed worse than companies that didn't even sign the pledge. And none of the companies that signed the pledge bothered to get board approval, except for uh, JP Morgan Chase, which seems like a pretty good indicator that they're not taking it all that seriously. So, you know, I think the terms of engagement with the public have changed and will continue to change because companies have to think about their brands. But at the end of the day, you know, we should not uh, have any illusions about it. CEOs of publicly traded companies feel a strong fiduciary responsibility to maximize profits for their shareholders. That's the special stakeholder in all this, the shareholder. Yeah, for sure. And themselves. And I, I, I couldn't agree with you more that that stakeholder capitalism thing that the roundtable did was virtually meaningless, that in the absence of laws and regulations that require companies to pay their workers enough to get by without food stamps and require them to pay taxes and require them to do all of the things that enable a functioning democracy to thrive. Uh, it, it's all a PR stunt. And that's yeah. it. And during the pandemic, Nick, require companies to provide paid sick leave, require companies to provide a safe working uh, place uh, to provide uh, protective gear, et cetera. Uh, you know, here in Seattle, our city council did a lot of that stuff, but uh, it wasn't the companies who did it on their own. Right. You yeah, know, all, for sure. All, all, all of that uh, uh, extra pay that went to grocery workers and uh, delivery drivers and so forth, that was mandated uh, by ordinance. And yeah. uh, and if not for that, uh, it never would have happened. Yeah. Our podcast is, you know, sort of dedicated to economics. Right. And I'm particularly interested in what you call the cosmic lie, yeah. uh, which I believe that we have um, analyzed in great depth over the last couple of years, which is largely the neoliberal proposition that when the rich get richer, that's good for the economy. And when the poor get richer, that's bad for the economy. 
Right. Basically that, that anything that helps rich people, you know, increase their wealth or their profits uh, will magically increase economic growth and GDP and all sorts of good things. And anything we do to improve the lives of ordinary people will increase the federal deficit and bankrupt our great country. Basically, that's the that's the construct of neoliberalism embedded in neoclassical economics. And so, you know, I guess, you know, for my own part, I'd just be interested in how you think about this. I think your analysis is largely correct uh, that billionaires are eating the world, that the concentration of wealth that the West has both enabled and allowed is at the core of the crisis in democracy and civility and stability that you know we face but you know it was really from our point of view the 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 economics the professional economics profession that was at the core of this catastrophe right. because they gave everyone permission to believe this nonsense People need to believe that what they're doing is morally righteous and just and uh, appropriate. And so people make up these stories, these narratives to, you know, self-justify. And, and that is not that that characteristic is not something we, we are likely to be able to extinguish from humanity. But, you know, it was the clowns in the in the universities that gave you know, legitimacy to all this nonsense. So anyway, you know, like I actually do know some of these guys and make no mistake, they are, they tend to be, you know, pathologically ambitious, predominantly selfish people, but we just are going to always have a bunch of those people in our society. What's super frustrating is the degree to which the economics profession hijacked these conversations in ways that made even people on the so-called left buy into it. So, so I, I guess if there's a question here, uh, Nick, it's uh, how much of the blame falls on the uh, sociopathic billionaires and how much of it on the economists who uh, shilled for them? Yeah. Well, I don't think they can be separated exactly. I, I, I think, yeah. Nick, you make a really important point. You know, there are, I mean, I focus in the book on people like Robert Bork, you know, who sold us this idea uh, it was once a wacko idea. It became a mainstream idea. And to your point, embraced, you know, not just by Republican administrations like Reagan and the two Bushes, but by by Clinton and to a certain extent, Obama, uh, that, oh, you know, so 100%. long as a cons the consumer uh, isn't paying higher prices for something, then, you know, no harm, no foul. Any merger uh, is is good because it gives us more it's scale. Efficient. It's efficient. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, but I, I guess the point of my book is to say that none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. I, mean, I think it's pretty familiar. That, I mean, I, I've had some criticism of the book from people saying, well, why are you picking on the billionaires? Isn't the fault of the government? Well, okay. I mean, <laughs> don't the billionaires have a little bit of influence uh, yeah. over you know who's pulling the levers of government? I mean, the campaign finance is enormous. I think less understood is the point that you're making. Uh, but but I, I I think that academics themselves. I mean, we we know that you know people like Glenn Hubbard at Columbia have have had their research uh, financed by uh, right wing yeah, groups that are sure. directly interested, you know, in serving corporate constituents with the deregulatory and tax cutting pack. I mean, the American Enterprise Institute, you know, supposedly yeah. this think tank in Washington. I mean, it's a funnel for Davos man to essentially yeah. perpetuate the cosmic lie. 
And, and, and so it's not an accident that the academics who are the ones who are saying, hey, everything's going to be great if we just give more money to rich people are the, are the ones who end up with the biggest bullhorn and then they have the greatest influence. And then I, I think to your point, that intersects with the idea that we all want a narrative where, you know, we're not nanny state loving, you know, Europeans, we're swashbuckling capitalists on the frontier. Yeah. You know, if you if you didn't do well, like Jeff Bezos, you must not have tried hard enough, but let's not pollute our system, you know, with a just, you know, looking after the losers, let's celebrate the winners. And I think there's something deeply American about that. Thing. But, you know, again, it's not an accident that this goes back to the end of the Second World War, the Cold War, the big business managed to, and Davos man insinuated this idea that, that hey, business is how we defeated communism. So let's celebrate business as the force for liberation from all problems. Yeah. T tell us a little bit more about the personalities that drove this narrative. Who is the center of this story? Um, well, I've got these five primary characters, some of whom we've Yeah, but the secondary characters are quite interesting. Well, uh, the, the, what do you call supporting cast? Yeah, uh, the Davos uh, man enablers, people enablers, like right. Emmanuel yeah, yeah. Macron, the president yeah. of France, who, you know, sells his presidency to the public as this, you know, we're done with the cynicism of the primary parties on the right and the left. This is a people's movement. It's really a vessel funded by Davos man like Bernard Arnault, the CEO behind Louis Vuitton, uh, a bunch of investment bankers at BNP Paribas, uh, member of the global financial establishment, including Larry Fink. You know, they embrace him as guy who's going to make France friendly to business. And Macron makes the disastrous choice to cut wealth taxes at the same time that he increases gas taxes. And, you know, Americans who go to places like Paris as tourists may be surprised to learn that France is actually a lot more like the U.S. than we think. And most people depend upon their cars to get to work, to get their kids to school. And so this has just disastrous consequences. People are furious. This is where the Yellow Vest movement uh, comes from. And the Yellow Vest movement is is somewhat complicated, but it overlaps with the extreme right, the, the National Front headed by Marine Le Pen, uh, right. demonizing immigrants, essentially diverting attention from the reality that France's problems, like most problems in most developed economies, is the story that I'm telling. It's this pillaging over decades in plain view by Davos men who've managed to uh, essentially dismantle public spending and transfer the proceeds to themselves. But on the surface is always something like, oh, a bunch of people have shown up who don't speak French or Swedish or Italian or whatever from some other country. Uh, and political opportunists come along and blame them for problems that are, are really much deeper problems that reflect scarcity. Let's talk for a minute about, uh, I think you make a really important point about fooling the public into believing that public problems will be best solved by private interests. And, you know, the degree to which philanthropy plays a role in, you know, greenwashing bad behavior. Right. Right. Like, so can you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, there have been multiple moments that I've seen at Davos over the years. You know, there was one uh, famously uh, where, you know, Michael Dell was on this panel back in, I think, 2018. 
Uh, and he said in response to a question on a panel, you know, hey, why why should I give my money to the government? The government is just uh, dysfunctional and inefficient, and uh, I can do much better uh, just by uh, running my philanthropic empire. It turns out, you know, his philanthropy uh, that year, depending on how, how you measure it, is like, you know, less than 1% of his income for the year. I mean, if there'd been yeah. a wealth tax, uh, any any sort of wealth tax proposed, whether you like the Sanders one or the, or the Warren one or, you know, your own version would have collected a whole lot more. And of course, he then says, uh, well, we don't need higher tax rates. Uh, we Higher tax rates uh, would just be uh, de destructive toward innovation. Yeah. America could never grow with tax rates of 70 percent uh, the way they have in some Nordic countries. And of course, uh, there's this MIT economist seated to his left. He says, well, actually... We have that in America, and America grew just fine. And this right. is actually well, news. Faster, actually. Yeah, right. And, yeah. and this is and actually it was news. news. Right. News to to yeah. I, I'm I'm often struck by how little understanding of these issues these folks have. Like in general, these are very, very smart people, but they do not think deeply about public policy. <laughs> right. or understand this stuff very well. To be clear, you know, Jeff Bezos is very smart. So is Michael Dell and, and Mark Benioff. They're very bright guys. But uh, it is often remarkable how detached the, uh, these folks are from the underlying dynamics which have made them wealthy. It's even more dangerous than ignorance. I mean, if we go back to the robber barons who, you know, they like to put their names on buildings. We got Carnegie Hall, we got university campuses, but by and large for them, lots of wealth was an end in itself. You know, they were happy to live behind this secure perimeter. Whereas, you know, this species that I'm calling Davos man, I mean, they're seeking our adulation on a whole different level as a way of fending off accountability. It's like a preemptive against us actually using our democracies yeah. to have a say over how wealth is distributed and to have a say over rules in the marketplace. So we're not just yeah. suffering monopolies. So, you know, take somebody like Steve Schwartzman, right? I mean, he's the, he's the private equity magnate who's worth 35 or $36 billion, depending upon the day. And, you know, he vacuums up foreclosed homes after the great financial crisis and the great recession in the States. And he's not simply content to like flip these homes for a huge profit and, and you know, say you're welcome to the shareholders. I mean, he actually writes in his memoir and I've heard him in public speeches go on and on about, oh, this wasn't about the money. This was an act of civic virtue. I went into communities <laughs> where giant weeds were overgrowing houses and, you know, rodents were, uh, it, 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 there were rodent infestations and we fixed up these communities and slapped paint on houses. And, you know, it's like you can almost hear the soundtrack for a soothing, you know, life insurance commercial with an adorable golden retriever puppy, you know, romping on some lawn. I mean, the, the truth is he, he creates this subsidiary called Invitation Homes, which is an invitation for huge numbers of people to pay uh, exorbitant rents. He invites them to sit on hold for several hours because suddenly, you know, maintenance has become uh, automated and uh, good luck if your dishwasher breaks or e even if you have like a plumbing emergency. And this is, you know, this is a flat on catastrophe where his wealth is coming at the direct expense of housing. And yet 
you know, I tell the story in the book of how he uh, provokes the ire of the UN Special Rapporteur for Housing and Human Rights, who accuses Schwarzman and his company Blackstone of creating uh, a, a, a grave shortage of affordable housing around the world. And their response to this is, no, 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 we're not the problem. We're the solution. We're providing affordable housing. And that's the trick that these guys pull off yeah. again and again in fending off accountability. L- literal and figurative rent seeking is the solution. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, it, it, this is the oldest trick uh, in the elite playbook, which is to use pro-social arguments for anti-social ends. Right. Works. Yeah. It works like a charm and well, has well, for that, thousands of years. <laughs> so, so what's the solution, Peter? Yeah. One of the things you point out uh, in the book is how really profoundly undemocratic Davos man is, both in terms of their outlook and uh, the consequences. Uh, but we're going to make you, we're, we're going to go with the undemocratic route here and make you benevolent dictator. I'm the philosopher and, king. Well, yeah. I mean, the philosopher king immediately abdicates to the people. Like we, I mean, we need what we already <laughs> have. We don't need a revolution. We don't need some sort of, you know, utopian flight of fancy. We need what we already had. We need progressive taxation. We need real antitrust enforcement. We need uh, rules that allow labor movements to organize so that working people can get their slice of the pie. If we had those three things, we'd be able to solve a lot. And, you know, some people say, well, you know, how, how, how could we, where does that exist? That exists to a large extent in the Nordic countries. And it existed in the United States from, from the end of the Second World War till the late 70s. And I, I don't have some sort of fetish for the 60s or 70s. I don't want a time machine backwards. We've made tremendous social progress that we ought to hang on to. We don't want to go back to the time of Jim Crow and the Vietnam War. But we do want one element of that time, which is wage gains that are reflective of productivity gains and that flow from a process of collective bargaining. So it's not just like oh, we have labor shortages, let's pay one-time signing bonuses to truck drivers who will jump ship, uh, while there's no guarantee that when we get back to something like what we've had in recent decades, uh, anybody will, will keep uh, what they've got. We don't need discretionary bonuses, we need a process of collective bargaining. That will, you know, that all sounds very simple to say, and it would be pretty simple uh, except for the fact that our democracy is essentially controlled by the people who don't want to sacrifice. Uh, that is a formidable problem. It's the central problem of our time. So getting money out of politics is a, is a big part of the solution. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and understanding that we've been sold this false binary, you know, this idea that we either yeah. have the status quo with all the stuff we love, cell phones and apps and Google and central air conditioning and lots of food on the shelf, vaccines against things like COVID, uh, or we monkey with that and then we might as well be Venezuela. Yeah. This is this right. false binary idea that Davos man sells us right. to prevent us from actually using our democracy. So, so there's a lot of uh, ridicule in your use of the term Davos man. How important is... Uh, ridicule in in combating him i mean I, there's a certain amount of ridicule because like this stuff is titillating right i mean i've been to davos and watched you know billionaires submit to 
uh, the Syrian refugee experience where they're blindfolded and led around in the dark <laughs> while someone's hollering at them, you know, demanding papers in some language they don't understand. And then they go off to, you know, the Google party or Mark Benioff's bash, Hawaii themed with the black eyed peas flown in for performance, or, you know, eating truffles <laughs> and caviar. Uh, I mean, it's that all that stuff is absurd and people should be aware of it. But what I'm really trying to provoke is a sense of outrage, right? I mean, I, I read a lot of stories. I'm generally a sort of bottom-up journalist. So I, I write from the vantage point of working people, the people like, you know, Kristen Smalls, this guy that, who was fired at the Amazon warehouse for supposedly violating quarantine, but he wanted everyone to be quarantined. And people will sometimes say to me like, oh, your story was so sad. And to which I find myself saying, no, 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 it's not sad. It's outrageous. Like, it, this mm -hmm. is something that's been taken from us. We've had a, a democracy that was much more vibrant than it is now, where you could have a conversation about sacrifice. And how are we going to, I mean, if the average person understands that their needs, their ability to support their family to middle class standard is a sham, like that doesn't operate anymore. And they can see that the Davos man billionaires are not sacrificing at all and are in, in fact perpetually arguing that every solution can be solved without their sacrificing. How do we deal with something really serious like, you know, coal miners in West Virginia, where we do have to say to them, hey, sorry, you know, your way of, of making a living, that doesn't fit into the future. You're going to have to do something else. Uh, how is that person supposed to have any yeah. faith that there's going to be some help? transitioning to something else, that their family will have health care, housing. You know, we, we now live in a time where whatever you've got, you're just going to hang on to it uh, with all your might in America because you understand that any change is potentially malignant and nobody's going to help you and, there's, and nobody's sacrificing. So unless we restore greater economic opportunity and unless the people at the top do have to sacrifice for the greater good, then no one will. And then we can't talk about anything. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what we've argued for a long time is that in a society where a few people are winning and everybody else is losing, and it's really, really obvious, it's, you know, that shreds the reciprocity norms that make social cohesion and democracy possible. Totally. Right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, people do things like they go to the Capitol and try and burn it down. Or, or they don't take vaccines. When we're yeah, hoarding right. them and depriving right. the rest of humanity yeah. of vaccines, and we're not even taking them ourselves because people think, you know, it's a Bill Gates conspiracy or a computer chip from the government. Yeah. I mean, we don't know how people will respond when huge numbers of people are effectively kicked out of the economy and it's not functional for them, but we know it's not going to be good. Yeah, correct. Correct. That, that We know that for a fact. So one final question. Why do you do this work? I do this work because it's just crucial that we make the connections between uh, lots of stories that seem siloed, but that are all part of a collective whole. I mean, I, I'm a believer that uh, journalism is vital. Uh, it's a vital part of change. You can't have a productive democracy that's truly representative unless we got information you know, I, I don't I don't have any illusions uh, that somehow any one piece of journalism is transformative. But I'm hey, I'm trying to be on the right side of history. There you go. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, it doesn't matter whether you think journalism is vital. It only matters if Davos man thinks journalism <laughs> is vital since he owns it all. 
Well, he owns more and more of it. And yeah. that, that is alarming. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it's a fascinating book. It's a true book. And uh, we wish you the best of luck with it. Hey, thank you guys so much. I, you know, I'm a longtime listener, uh, first time caller. So it's, it's exciting <laughs> yeah. to be on your pod. Uh, I listened Great. to it quite a bit as I was doing the research for the book. You know, Goldie, I think that was a really interesting conversation. And, uh, you know, I think it's a, it, the book is an important contribution. But I guess my core viewpoint, which hasn't really changed, is that you are not going to persuade this group of people or the group of people that follows them to change their behavior in ways that will make uh, laws and regulations unnecessary. Like, I think it's really important to call these folks out, but the idea that they are going to be helpful in you know, sort of reimagining a world or a policy framework that is more equitable and more sustainable and more just, it's just a fool's errand, right? Like Jamie Dimon is not going to be helpful. Jeff Bezos is not going to be helpful. And to depend on them to do the right thing, it's just, I just, it's just insanely naive. That's the bad news. The good news is that for every one of them, there's like 10,000 ordinary people and in a democracy, you ought to be able to pass the laws that are necessary to ensure that the economy fairly distributes the value it creates. And, and, and that explains why, Nick, they're so busy trying to dismantle democracy. Yeah. You raised a question in the intro, and I think during the interview as well, of uh, who's real, how much do we blame the billionaires and how much do we blame the economists who are shilling for them. And, you know, my take on this, Nick, is, yeah, of course, they can't be successful without the people spinning the narratives that maintain the fiction uh, that keeps them in control. And, you know, as we know, it's all a fiction, uh, the economy, everything. It's the stories we tell ourselves. But, uh, you know, uh, I want to make the point that they have a choice here. The Davos man has a choice. They are spending their money hiring people to spin the narratives that serve their own selfish interests. And to your credit, Nick, you are not. You are paying me. You literally hired me to do the opposite, to help you build a narrative that works against your short-term economic interests, that works in the interests of average working people. And so everybody that goes to Davos could be doing exactly what you're doing. And very few of them are. Yeah, no, that's true. They've made the choice to spin that trickle-down narrative, to spin that narrative of them as philanthropic heroes. And you've made the choice to do the opposite. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, uh, I think the blame in the end is on the people with the money not the economists that they hire. There's always a hired gun out there. You can always hire people to do your bidding, but they're hiring people to do a specific bidding and they're paying them very, very well. If there was more money on our side of the story, uh, we'd be a little more successful. Yeah, no, I mean, you make a good point. 
Goldie. And, uh, you know, and having spent a bunch of time advocating for the stuff that we advocate for with this group of people, it is dispiriting how often they're a hundred percent with you on saving the middle class or whatever it is until you get to the part where they have to pay their workers more or pay more taxes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> until, I, until there's actual trade-offs and then it's like, Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> that that's a bridge too far. <laughs> yeah. I, I will though. I will close Nick. Uh, I will be gracious and close and say one thing in defense of people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. And, and that is, I don't mind launching them into space. Uh, it's just the return trip that troubles me. <laughs> That's a wonderful place to end. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.